Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleagues, Carmen Pawn, who authors our new Global Pulse newsletter, and Jeremy Siegel from our daily Dispatch podcast. We're looking at the state of the pandemic globally and how the U.S. response compares to other countries from across the world. Here's that conversation. Carmen Pawn, Dan Diamond, uh, can I ask you both a question? Yes. Go for it. If you had to wait out the pandemic anywhere in the world, where would you? The first thing that comes to mind is Maldives, where I went a few years ago. But then looking back, you know, like it was beautiful, but it was a small island. And I think we got bored towards the fourth <laughs> day. So if I would have to stay there for two years, maybe that would not be the best one. Okay, <laughs> that, no. that would be pretty okay. tough. <laughs> I, okay, I got it. I would be I would be in Bali, ideally. It's it's bigger, Bali. more things to do. And um, still an island. So hopefully it can still keep away the the coronavirus. I like that. All right, Dan, what do you got? Is this supposed to be hard? I mean, New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> they they are the one place in the world that you can walk around safely for months now uh, with, with only the mildest of coronavirus outbreaks. So I think that's where I'd want to be, not just for sanity, uh, but for safety. I, I, I'm surprised. I was about 90% sure you were going to say the set of The Bachelorette. I will never apologize for love. I'll apologize if I wasted your time. I'll apologize if I hurt you. But I'm not going to apologize for love. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, may, I may not be able to live that down. They do have a set there, but it's the set for The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I've wandered around. There's far too many dwarves in my dining room as it is. If this is some... Lotted's idea of a joke. <laughs> I can only say it is in poor taste. Which is which is another uh, an, another show of people being forced to live together in perhaps um, unusual <laughs> and uncomfortable ways. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm guessing your answer to this question will probably explain why you're not choosing to wait out the pandemic here. But what is the current coronavirus situation in the U.S., Dan? It's bad, Jeremy. Uh, cases are spiking again the nationally. The rise in the infection rate is rapidly filling hospitals in all but eight states, the exceptions being Hawaii, California, Arizona, Idaho, Wyoming, North Dakota, Georgia, and Vermont. We weren't able as a country to bring the threshold of new cases below about 40,000 cases per day. And at times recently, it's been up over 70,000 new cases per day. So we are heading into what looks like a potentially bad winter of more cases spreading as people are indoors, as we can't do uh, life outside the same way. I'm in Minnesota right now where it's been snowing. Uh, the first snowfall of the year always brings some excitement, maybe kind of a oh my gosh moment. Snowflakes fell across the Twin Cities from Bloomington to Maple Grove, Minneapolis, and St. Paul. And, and Midwestern states have been really hard hit in the past couple of weeks. They are hitting their highs of new cases. University of Michigan this week effectively threw in the towel on in-person student instruction. An emergency stay-at-home order has been issued for all undergraduate students. Washtenaw County health officials say students must stay in their homes and residence halls 
with few exceptions. And meanwhile, in states like New York and New Jersey, which were already hard hit, infections are starting to creep back up. So from a volume perspective, we're not in a great place. I will say the silver lining, such as it is, is that mortality, death rates from COVID have fallen as it appears physicians are getting better at treating the disease. And there is some hope on the horizon, too, that therapeutics will continue to be rolled out that will help treat the disease, and vaccines will soon arrive that could really contain the spread of the virus. Carmen, what are cases like in other countries across the world? Are we seeing similar spikes to what we're seeing in the U.S.? Yes. The worst affected region of the world right now seems to be Europe. Countries across Europe are imposing tighter restrictions in the hope of slowing the spread of the coronavirus as cases continue to rise. Um, they are almost every day now. There are new restrictions announced in different countries. France has recorded a new high of 32,000 cases in a single day. Authorities there have brought in a curfew in major cities requiring all public spaces to be shut by 9 p.m. Ireland imposed the countrywide lockdown again. Um, Czech Republic is doing something similar. Um, so things are getting pretty bad again in Europe. Having been in Europe when this all started and, and seeing every day that there were new measures and new restrictions um, hitting around, I feel like it's a deja vu. And to be fair with you and honest, I'm happy that I'm not there anymore because I think we all have a bit of a sort of like traumatic um, stress related to lockdowns and everything being closed overnight and, and you know, different measures being put in place. Other regions um, seem to be doing a bit better. There have been decreases in Africa in the Western Pacific. But overall, the number of cases globally remains high. It's interesting what you're saying. You know, you said cases are rising, but then also when you're talking about Europe, there are new lockdown restrictions. That's not something I feel like we've been seeing in the U.S. despite the recent spikes in cases. How would you say other countries' responses right now compare to what's happening in the U.S.? And is there anything that you think America can learn here? I think it really depends because um, it has to be really related to the situation on the ground. If it's a cluster in a certain area that you can address without, you know, locking down the whole city or the whole state, that's probably the way to go. Um, Europe, I remember in, in May, I was writing already about experts looking at the second wave and they were actually hoping, for example, in Belgium, that they would be able to see where a cluster is happening and, you know, try to decrease transmission there without having to lock down the whole country again. And it looks like, unfortunately, they weren't really able to. Um, so I would say that there are probably similarities between between Europe and the United States. Obviously, overall, it looks like the United States has been more reluctant to impose lockdowns because of all the economic and social hardship that it brings. The lockdowns are doing tremendous damage to these Democrat-run states where they're locked down, sealed up, suicide rates, drug rates, alcoholism, death by so many different forms. You can't do that. Um, but in terms of being able to test, track cases, quarantine people that have been in contact with someone that was confirmed infected, it looks to me like both Europe and the United States have similar issues. Um, I was listening to... Um, a brief from the World Health Organization earlier this week. Hello, everybody. This is Fadila Shaib speaking to you from WHO headquarters in Geneva. 
and welcoming you to our COVID-19 press conference today, Monday, 19 October. And they were actually comparing North America and Europe with Asia. There is an advantage in Asia, and again, I think communities in Asia uh, do have higher levels of trust and compliance in government, and they've tended to be able to implement uh, for longer some of the measures that have been required of them in terms of their own behavior. And they were saying that while many countries in Asia have been successful, like South Korea, or if you also consider um, New Zealand, is because they did early on try to look at these clusters and try to decrease transmission before it was hard to control, before it had already spread to you know, the whole city or the whole country. In Japan, they've really focused on cluster investigation. They've focused on really breaking clusters and learning from those clusters what's driving super-spreading events in Japan. And what they also did, um, the WHO officials were saying, is that once they decreased transmission, they didn't just relax. They actually, you know, kept their facilities open, and every time there would be a new case, they would do a lot of tests and, and tracing of the contacts and trying to isolate them to make sure it doesn't, again, spread out of control. So the WHO says there's definitely stuff we can learn from other countries when it comes to controlling the spread. I mean, Dan, right now, even though there is a significant rise in cases in the U.S., we're not really seeing new restrictions at all. And the country's still struggling with things like contact tracing and and getting people on board with the public safety measures we do have in place. What do you think this difference between what's happening here and happening elsewhere tells us about how the country is treating the pandemic. Jeremy, I think it tells us that we're having a very different conversation than the conversation in countries that have more successfully combated COVID. I was watching the prime minister debate uh, between the two leading candidates in New Zealand a few weeks ago. And this debate actually aired the same night as the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and President Trump. And in this New Zealand debate, the moderator asked both candidates, who I should say were both women, uh, asked what they would do if there was a coronavirus outbreak at Christmas time in one of the nation's big cities. Judith Collins, what <laughs> would you do if you were prime minister in that situation? Well, in that case, if there is a community outbreak and it's in Christchurch, you'd have to lock down Christchurch. And both candidates agreed, we have to lock down. We have to interrupt people's Christmas time because it's more important to protect the country, to impose these restrictions, to keep people alive. But I think you do have to put people's health first. And in fact, one of the candidates, Jacinda Ardern, even said, I would do what I already did, which is move to lockdown. I would do exactly what I did in the real life scenario. We already had a resurgence plan and we activated it. And to split screen that against Joe Biden and Donald Trump being asked about shutdowns and Biden's answer being more in line with that approach and Donald Trump, meanwhile, arguing that shutdowns are a political attack on him. He wants to shut down the country. More people will be hurt by continuing. If you look at Pennsylvania, if you look at certain states that have been shut down, they have Democrat governors all. One of the reasons they're shut down is because they want to keep it shut down until after the election on yeah. November 3rd. Because it's a political The Democratic governors are trying to hurt their economies in an effort to weaken his re-election bid. I mean, we're just literally a world apart. And I, I do think there's some element of fatigue, as Carmen gets to. We are months into this outbreak. It is a, a dangerous and deadly and very sneaky virus that is incredibly hard to contain. And anyone would be wearing down in 
months of efforts and of diligence in trying to fight it. But what Republican governors in the states have had to deal with is not just their own challenge of trying to tamp down a public health problem, but the messaging very much on the right from conservatives, from people like Donald Trump, that locking down is anti-American, that it's against freedom. So we've seen a lot of Republican governors in boxes where they might want to do more, but they're constrained by the rhetoric around coronavirus. At the same time that these stark differences in how the U.S. and other world leaders are handling the pandemic have emerged, there's also been a pretty big shift in America's role on the global stage, particularly at the WHO, the World Health Organization, which President Trump recently announced the U.S. was withdrawing from. Carmen, in your reporting on how the pandemic is being handled and affecting countries across the world, what sort of power gap have you seen emerge as a result of Trump's actions here with the WHO? And who is filling it? It is indeed a power gap. Usually the U.S. would be the leader. They would send their experts in the country having an outbreak and they would try to, you know, help them quash it there before it, it spreads out. And that hasn't happened here. Obviously, it was also because early in the pandemic, as much as the U.S. and other countries wanted to send their experts into China, um, they weren't really um, received with open arms until a bit later. Um, so we've seen we've seen the Europeans trying to step in. The European Commission has organized fundraisers um, with the World Health Organization to be able to develop vaccines and medicines and diagnostics. Um, the UK actually announced that they will increase the funding to the WHO by a third um, in the next four years. And Germany is trying to take a leadership role by saying we need to be more involved um, in the WHO and we need to take the rest of the European Union countries with us. At the same time, um, China is also stepping in. Um, there's this global program called COVAX trying to get access to vaccines to all countries at the same time once they become available. And the WHO and other international organizations running it are trying to get all countries rich and poor to be part of it. And China is part of it. It has four vaccines in very late stage trials um, out of the 11 that are in phase three right now. But the U.S., which so far, um, to our knowledge, has put the most money into developing vaccines, has stayed out. So there's definitely a lack of leadership that, um, you know, Europe and, and potentially China are trying to fill. But we will see how that plays out in the months to come. There is an election in the U.S. in less than two weeks. Um, President Trump and Joe Biden obviously have major differences in how they plan to fight the pandemic and how they plan to coordinate with other countries and organizations like the WHO. Dan, would you say the U.S.'s global standing and its role as a health leader is on the line in this election? Absolutely. I moderated a virtual panel last week for the Milken Institute that included Peggy Hamburg, the former FDA chief under President Barack Obama, as well as John Nkengasong, the head of the Africa CDC, so Africa's version of the, the U.S. CDC. And this topic came up in our planning calls. It came up on the panel. And Peggy, who, again, to be clear, worked for President Obama, she made the point that you could trace the rise and fall of global engagement to who was in the Oval Office, and the amount of global work that needs to be done to detect and combat emerging diseases, the U.S. historically has played, as Carmen said, played a major role in leading that effort and, and being a global support system. 
We are playing less of that now. We have pulled out of these international organizations, and that has a signaling effect well beyond what we do on COVID-19. And John Nkengasong, the head of the Africa CDC, he used to work for the U.S. CDC, and I asked him, what did he make of the Trump administration's efforts to meddle with the CDC? Did that hurt his work, his ability to trust what the U.S. CDC was putting out? And he said, absolutely, that this this is a problem that resonates beyond the states. So between our engagement with global health organizations, as well as the stewardship of U.S. health groups under the president, both of those will play a major role in how the world perceives the United States on healthcare moving forward. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to my colleagues Carmen Pawn and Jeremy Siegel for joining me on this episode. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. To stay up on the latest on the pandemic, you can sign up for Politico Pulse, which I co-author with Adam Kankren every morning, and our new Global Pulse newsletter, which is written by Carmen. You can check our episode notes for links to both. Subscribe to Politico Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app, and you can help us by leaving a rating or review. Every time you do that, that helps new listeners discover the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe, and we'll be back again with you next week.